Several years ago, I was driving my youngest daughter and some of her friends to a church youth group activity. And it's always amusing to listen to the conversations of 12 and 13-year-old girls chattering away. Well, on this particular taxi ride, the conversation shifted to some big teen-friendly movie that just hit the theaters. And one of the girls just exclaimed, oh, I can't wait to see that movie. And all the other girls, with one exception, echo the same level of anticipation. The one lone exception quickly blurted out, yeah, I saw that. The girl dies at the end. <laughs> and then there was silence, and you could see the excitement just sort of quickly fade away. You know, knowing the end of the story removes a great deal of tension and anticipation. Anybody here ever record a football game knowing that you won't be able to watch it until later? Oh, I hear the groans. <laughs> if so, you know the effort it takes to keep from knowing the outcome because if you know your team is going to get beat, as is in the case of the Cowboys, <laughs> I know, I know, too soon. I'm a Chicago Bears fan, so I experienced that quite a bit. So why not just bother and skip to the end? And even if you know that the team is going to win, you just don't get all worked up over a bad call or a busted play because you know that they're going to win in the end. Now think about that as it relates to the Old Testament narratives. Can any of you here remember hearing the story of David and Goliath for the first time and not knowing how the story ended? I can't. I mean, the church that I was raised in my parents joined when I was in the womb. So as far back as I can remember, I've always known the end of that story. Now that doesn't make the story any less triumphant, but I think it changes the way we relate to the tension felt by the characters in the story. And it changes, uh, it changes what they, the challenges of what they faced in that moment. So Today, as we continue in our study in the Joseph narrative, a story we've all heard and we all know the outcome, I want us to attempt to embed ourselves in the narrative in real time to understand from their perspective the questions, the challenges, and the choices they faced with the tensions involved in making those choices so we can learn from that. And, and as we do so, we'll learn some valuable lessons in how we should respond to the sovereignty of God in real time. Let's begin by reading our text in Genesis 43. In verse 1, now the famine was severe in the land. Okay, let's stop right there. <laughs> I know you think, oh gosh, this is going to be a long day. Famines mentioned in the Old Testament had different causes. In Exodus 9, the food supply was destroyed as a result of hail, one of the ten plagues that rained on Egypt, which helped prompt the Exodus. Then in Exodus 10, another plague, the food supply was eaten by locusts, causing a famine. There were also famines that resulted from invasions or military sieges, such as those described in Deuteronomy or 2 Kings. Well, in this case... For an extended famine in Egypt mentioned in this narrative, it was so extensive it was due to the lack of rainfall that went far beyond Egypt and affected the land of Canaan where Jacob and his sons lived. Now, as we read this story from the beginning to end, we're not surprised by the famine or the extent of its pervasive impact on the surrounding areas. This was no surprise to Joseph or to Pharaoh due to Pharaoh's dream and Joseph's interpretation. The famine, therefore, being predicted 
natural event not caused by human intervention was clearly an orchestrated event caused by our sovereign God. Now regarding such famines, the Zondervan Pictorial Encyclopedia describes famines this way. In the Bible, famine is never regarded as a mere accident of nature. For God is the creator and ruler of all natural powers. Famines form part of God's ordering of the lives of his people as with the journeys of Abraham and Isaac to Egypt and the meeting of Naomi and Ruth. By means of a famine, God raised Joseph to a position of authority in Egypt and brought all the families of Israel into that land. Psalm 104 celebrates God's hand over the sustenance of his creation. Know what the psalmist says in verses 13 and 14 as it pertains to our point here. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of his works. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and the vegetation for the labor of man so that he may bring forth food from the earth. So in this narrative that we're talking about today, he withholds that rain. So this leads to the first point we need to make to observe from this chapter today. The sovereignty of God defines the context in which we live. The sovereignty of God defines the context in which we live. So what is the context in this story that has been defined by the sovereignty of God? Well, back in chapter 41, Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dream regarding what was about to happen for the next 14 years. And as a result, this famine would have a major impact on their lives. And this is not a prediction that is based on a calculated guess. It's not some meteorological meteorologist analyzing weather patterns and studying cold fronts. This is God Almighty revealing his plan regarding what they are about to confront. Both Joseph and Pharaoh knew what was about to happen, and they knew the source of the information. And as Joseph, in his newly appointed role, was organizing and implementing his plan for food storage during those seven years of abundance, maybe he explained to his crew why they were taking such important measures to store, as it says in chapter 41, verse 49, grain that was beyond measure. So that was a, an abundant time. But there are other characters in the story besides Joseph. Jacob and his brothers are a key part of this chapter. And as we read the first verse in chapter 43, and we will get to the rest of the chapter, they were feeling the effects of the famine, but they didn't have the revealed information about the duration of the famine that was about to happen to Joseph. In 41, 48, it says that he, Joseph, gathered all the food of these seven years, which occurred where? In the land of Egypt and placed food in the cities. He placed in every city the food from its own surrounding fields. So based on the knowledge he had of God's sovereignly revealed plan, Joseph acted wisely according to what he knew was coming. However, there was no indication that Jacob and his sons had any knowledge of that divinely revealed plan. They didn't know why or for how long this famine would occur and had no advance warning to prepare in those first seven years abundance. Nonetheless, the famine orchestrated by the sovereignty of God was also the context under which they lived. Now, as we move past the first verse, this leads to the second point, which flows right out of the first point, and you'll see the connection. The context in which we live frames the choices we must make. 
the context in which we live frames the choices we must make. Now, as you read through the whole Joseph narrative, it's clear that this story is a magnificent display of God's sovereign plan as he orchestrates all these events for his purposes. And at this point in the story, Jacob and his sons have choices to make that are the direct result of the famine. So as we read through the text, let's note the decisions that they have to make. So let me read, I'll pick up in, chapter, in verse 2. Follow along. So it came about when they had finished eating the grain which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, go back, buy us a little food. Judah spoke to him, however, saying, the man solemnly warned us, you shall not see my faith, face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you do not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you will not see my face unless your brother is with you. Then Israel said, why do you treat me so badly by telling the man whether you still had another brother? But they said, now the other brothers chime in. The man questioned particularly about us and our relatives saying, is your father still alive? Have you another brother? So we answered his questions. Could we possibly know that he would say, bring your brother down? Judah said to his father Israel, send the lad with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. We as well as you and our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. You may hold me responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame before you forever. For if we had not delayed, surely by now we would have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best products of the land in your bags and carry down to the man as a present, a little balm, a little honey, aromatic gum and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also and arise and return to the man. And then he says in verse 14, And may God Almighty grant you compassion in the sight of the man so that he will release to you your other brother in Benjamin. As for me, if I'm bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present, and they took double the money in their hand, in Benjamin. Then they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. Well, the very first thing we notice here in this context where they live is the famine drives the need for more food. It was so severe and so extensive, no one had the ability to grow crops and feed their families. And it's quite simple. Without food, all would starve to death. But for this family, it was a little bit more complicated. And so the need for more food forces the decisions to be made. You see, that context is dictating what goes on in their life. They had only one option they had, go back to Egypt and buy more food. Both Jacob and his sons knew this was the only option. But notice what Jacob says. He says, go buy us a little food. Now, I find that rather odd. I don't know if you do. If my wife said to me, hey, go buy us a little food. I need a quart of milk and a can of corn. I would hop in my car and drive to as many as five or six food stores within five minutes of my house and be back before the final spin of the Wheel of Fortune. 
But if she knew that we were almost out of food completely and that there were these massive widespread food shortages, she wouldn't casually say, hey, go hop on the donkey and go to Tulsa and get us a little food. I mean, Tulsa is just over 200 miles from my house and roughly the same distance from Jacob's home to Egypt. It's not exactly a trip to the local Kroger. So why was he so cavalier about a major trip for such a desperate need? Well, when you look at the dialogue that follows, it reveals that the decisions to be made reveal one's true character in response to the context. Have you ever had, I'm sure when I look over this and there's a lot of people my age-ish, have you ever had a disagreement with someone that may or may not have resulted in a heated argument and never got resolved, but the argument was just dropped? And that's what I picture going on here. Upon their return from the first trip to Egypt, the sons told Jacob all about what happened when they were down there and the conditions they must follow if they expected to return and get more food and see their brother Simeon. But at the end of chapter 42, Jacob was emphatic. He said, my son referring to Benjamin, shall not go down with you. And the subject was dropped, was unresolved, until the cupboard got bare. Now the context in which they lived forced a decision, and these decisions will test and reveal their true character. So forced now to make a decision, I think there's three questions that we must answer that will give us a window into their transformation or their lack thereof. First of all, will Jacob relent on his unwillingness to let them take Benjamin? Now remember, we're embedding ourselves in that context, in that situation, and think what's going through his mind, the hesitancy he feels. Will he relent on his unwillingness to let them take Benjamin? It's no secret that Benjamin and Joseph were the favored ones in the family. He's been heartbroken for years about the loss of Joseph. Now the thought of losing Benjamin was really more than he could bear. Well, the second question has to be answered. Will the brothers scheme and lie their way around the situation? Now, we know from earlier in the narrative how, how enraged they were with Joseph when he related the dreams that he had, dreams that were indeed from God and about what was to come. And after years of seeing him favored by their father, they had a prime opportunity to act on their hatred. Their intent was to kill him. And they would have done so if Reuben, the oldest of the bunch, hadn't intervened. So we know what they were capable of. And when their jealousy and rage was unchecked, we knew what they could do. Which leads to a third question. Will the brothers react with jealousy and resentment as they had before over being the least favored by their father? After they sold Joseph into slavery in spite of his pleading, they concocted a story, we know, this, we know all about this, about his alleged death and convinced Jacob he was devoured by a wild animal. So now for all these years that Joseph has been gone from his father, they stood by their lie. These are the questions to be answered and the decisions that they would all have to make as a result of the context they were in under the sovereignly orchestrated events. Now think about these questions and the decisions they would have to make. <clears throat> First of all, Jacob's was a test of his trust in the Almighty God. There was no escaping the famine that threatened his life and his family. Egypt was the only option for food. It was indeed a struggle for him. And you can hear the agony in his voice in verse 6. Why did you treat me so badly by telling me whether you still had another brother? So after this intense negotiation with Judah, Jacob relents and allows them to take Benjamin. 
With a decision made, Jacob steps up to a responsible leadership role and lays out some instructions. Now, I'll have to confess, when I first read this, I found this to be a little humorous. I'll explain what I mean. So they're desperate for food, and Egypt's the only place to get it. They must face the man who is second only to Pharaoh. So he instructs them to take some gifts. Now, these gifts were basic, they basically represent some of the finer delicacies of their region and the country. And it was customary when approaching royalty to offer gifts as a show of respect, to convey an attitude of homage and submission. Proverbs 18, 18 16 says, A gift opens the way for the giver and ushers him, in, him into the presence of the great. So consider the gifts he told him to take. Well, first of all, it was myrrh. Now, we most associate that with the gifts of the Magi when they visited baby Jesus. In the Old Testament, myrrh was used for general deodorant purposes to squelch foul smells. Honey was rare enough to be considered a luxury, and it was often used in baking sweets. Balm. Now, this was most likely an aromatic rosin that was believed to have therapeutic usage in the ancient Near East and possibly used as an ointment for wounds and also a possible sedative. And then there's almonds and pistachios. Almonds were believed to have originated in Western India and Persia, and as it spread, it grew in Cana during the patriarchal period. So it's likely these were not yet growing in Egypt. So all these would be imports, specialties that the Egyptians couldn't get in the immediate area. So Jacob sends his sons to Egypt bearing gifts of honey, right guard, neosporin, and trail mix. I'm sorry, that's just the way my mind works. So after laying out his instructions, Jacob concludes with a prayer and a declaration of his trust in God. In verse 14, he says, May God Almighty, that's El Shaddai, grant you compassion in the sight of this man. Now that word compassion is the same word that's often used, translated mercy. How would mercy be defined in this situation? That both Simeon and Benjamin be released. And then the last statement Jacob makes in this dialogue is this. If I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. What does that tell us? Tell us Jacob is living under the sovereignly orchestrated events of a pervasive famine. He's faced with the unbearable thought of possibly losing his beloved son Benjamin while still after all these years grieving over the lo losing his son Joseph. But instead of fighting against his sovereign God and making choices based on his own powerless selfish will, he relents and trusts in El Shaddai. But now what about his sons? They were living in the same context of the sovereignty of God as was Jacob. With no food, they would suffer the same fate. So in this context in which they find themselves, it's a test of their integrity before God. Now, up to this point, they knew Jacob's resistance to sending Benjamin with them to return to Egypt, per Joseph's demands. And by now, we're all familiar with the character of these sons. Reuben, the oldest, had committed incest with his father's concubine, which Jacob knew about. Simeon and Levi, in revenge against Shechem for raping their sister Dinah, deceived Shechem and killed all the men in that city while they were racked with pain from circumcision. All the rest of the brothers were intent on killing Joseph because they hated him as the favored child and the dreams they deemed arrogant and insulting. And they would have killed him if Reuben hadn't stepped in and suggested they just throw him in the pit. So the brothers sell him into slavery. 
concoct this story about a brutal, his brutal demise and convince Jacob that he was dead and gone forever. Talk about family conflict. I mean, how would you like to have these guys for brothers? But now at this point, with their backs against the wall, so to speak, with the possibility of starvation looming in their near future, what choices would they make? That unresolved conversation that ended abruptly at the end of chapter 42 resurfaces, and initially it's rather contentious. Judah steps up as the spokesperson for the group, quite possibly because Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, Simeon not being there, had lost all credibility with their father due to past actions. Now remember, Judah was the brother who convinced the others to sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites. He profited from the sale and was finally rid of the brother that was the source of so much jealousy and hatred. To his credit, he stopped short of killing him, but sold him to a bunch of strangers who wouldn't, and that wouldn't certainly get him any awards for his nobility or kindness. So now the other beloved son of Jacob is the bargaining chip and the non-negotiable condition for their survival. And Judah was firm and direct in his conversation with Jacob. They had no choice. Either Benjamin goes with them as demanded by this Egyptian ruler, or they would starve. Now, maybe it was because Judah and the entire family is out of options. Maybe it was because for the last 20 years, Judah was racked with guilt over his grievous act toward his own brother. And there was a growth process taking place in his life. He promises to take full responsibility for Jacob's beloved son, Benjamin. Now, the term in the text is surety, meaning a pledge. It's somewhat of a risky commitment, depending on the circumstances. Proverbs 11:15 says, um, it says this, He who is a guarantor, surety, the same word, for a stranger will surely suffer for it, but he who hates being a guarantor is secure. So generally, this is a term used in financial commitments. A surety is given so that the creditor suffers no loss, as in putting up collateral. So what this would mean for Judah if Benjamin were taken captive or killed is really uncertain. What it does show is that Judah is stepping up to take responsibility for the situation, to do what was right and honorable and take full blame for something if something happens, something that his past hasn't always demonstrated. So in this situation, at least at this point, Judah refrains from scheming and lies and chooses the honest responsible approach. Now, there's a third question you see on the screen, but it won't be answered until we get into the next scene in the narrative. And that is, it's a test of their self-control and growth. So let's read on, picking up at verse 15. So the men took this present, and they took double the money in their hand. And Benjamin, they took him. Then they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph, when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to his house steward, Bring the men into the house, slay an animal, and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. So the man did as Joseph said and brought the men into Joseph's house. Now the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house. And they said, oh, It's because of the money that was returned in our sacks the first time that we're being brought in that he may seek an occasion against us and fall on us and take us for slaves with our donkeys. I don't know why they'd be so worried about the donkeys at that point. I think I'd be worried about my own neck. So they came near to Joseph's house steward and spoke to him at the entrance of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we indeed came down the first time to buy food, 
And it came about when we, were, when we came to the lodging place that we opened our sacks and behold, each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our, our, our money in full. So we brought it back in our hand. We've also brought down other money in our hand to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. And the steward said, be at ease. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I, I had your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. Then the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water. And they washed their feet and gave their donkeys fodder. So they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they were about to eat a meal there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present which was in their hand and bowed to the ground before him. Then he asked them about their welfare and said, Is your father well, of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is alive. They bowed down in homage. As he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, he said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, May God be gracious to you, my son. Joseph hurried out, for he was deeply stirred over his brother, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out and controlled himself and said, Serve the meal. So they served him by himself and by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat bread with the Hebrews for that was loathsome to the, to the Egyptians. Now they were seated before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in astonishment. He took portions to them from his own table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. So they feasted and drank freely. Now, I think it's important to remember that although we don't know how the story ends, I'm sorry, that we know how, we do know how the story ends, and we know the purpose behind all these orchestrated events, that's not the case with the characters in this story at the time it was happening. Joseph was a righteous man and a man of great integrity. And as we'll see in the upcoming chapters, he understood the meaning and purpose behind all these events. But at what point did it become clear to him? We aren't told about any reflections he had about his past until he sees his brother nearly 20 years, after 20 years. So after seeing them and watching them bow down before him and seeing the fulfillment of his dream right before his eyes, maybe it would all start to make sense. So if you can... Put yourself in that scene at that moment and consider Joseph's options. Now think about this. As a 17-year-old, wide-eyed and innocent, he's nearly killed by his own brothers, thrown into a pit, and in spite of his pleading with them, he's sold into slavery to a bunch of strangers, Ishmaelites no less. And he's carried off to Egypt, spends years in prison for something he doesn't do, but is eventually placed in a position of great responsibility and power, second only to Pharaoh. So once powerless in the hands of his brother, now he holds all power over them. <clears throat> so if he weighs them off, throws them all in prison, refuses to sell them food from a fleshly human standpoint, would anybody blame him? Don't we derive some satisfaction when the guilty receive their just punishment? All that to say, Joseph is also living in the context of the sovereignty of God. And the question for him is this, will Joseph seek revenge for his wrongful treatment? 
Now, we know the answer to that because you've all read the story. But we can't lose the lesson in the moment. Joseph had a choice. Just think if he had gone to Pharaoh and said, Hey, did I ever tell you the story of how I got here? You see these guys over here? They're my brothers. Let me tell you what they did. Now, what do you think Pharaoh would have done? Pharaoh gave Joseph a lot of responsibility, trusted him with all that was around. And I don't suspect that that Pharaoh would have said, ah, boys will be boys, just forget about it. I don't suspect that that would be his response. Now, we don't know Joseph's understanding of the unfolding plan of the sovereign God at that point, but whatever it was, he did not know the current character of his brothers who had treated him so badly in the past. So what Joseph does, I think you can see that he tests his brother's character. The testing began when he first saw them. And prior to that, the last time he was looking, the last time he saw them, prior to what was happened in the previous chapter, he was looking at, up at them from the bottom of a pit, pleading for his mercy. So had there been any change in their character? Was there any remorse for their heinous acts? Could they now be trusted to speak the truth and act with integrity? So he puts them to the test. Well, what are these tests? Well, first of all, how would they respond under pressure? So as we read in the text, upon arriving back in Egypt and standing before this powerful Egyptian leader, they were brought into his house for dinner. As we read, the men were afraid. And they were speculating as to the reason for this invitation. It's because of the money in our sacks. We're doomed and about to be slaves. We know what they were capable of from their past actions. They perpetuated that lie for 20 years and about the brother they hated. Maybe they would lie their way out of it. But they hold the truth. In spite of this intense fear, they told the truth. Joseph knew the truth about the money in the sacks. and Anything that was said to his house steward would probably get relayed back to him. So one little caveat to this story. Let me depart for a second. I find it interesting that his house steward, who was most likely an Egyptian himself and grew up in this pagan region of false gods, says, your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. He didn't say that they were directed by Joseph to do so, but he gave credit to their God. Where did he get that? Well, maybe this is a sanctified imagination, but the most reasonable explanation is through the influence from Joseph, the way he lived and what he talked about. I also wondered if when the brothers heard that from the steward, if they made any connection to Jacob's prayer for mercy, that mercy might be shown to them during their visit. There had to be a sense of relief when they were exonerated from any accusation of guilt or theft over what was in their sacks. That was test number one, and so far it appears that they passed. Now there's another caveat to this story that speaks of Joseph's righteous integrity. When he arrives back for the meal, Simeon now has joined them, and all the brothers, including Benjamin, are there. And what do they do? As they prevent their bag of goodies, they bow before him. Now that he, was, now that he has his full brother there with him, wouldn't this be a great time to blurt out, huh, you know, this reminds me of a dream I had, you know, like 20 years ago. It was this dream of sheaves, the sun, and the moon, all bowing down before me. Crazy, right? Does that sound familiar to you guys? Well, to his credit and his righteous devotion to an almighty God that he continued to trust through all of his trials, he refrained from selfish, fleshly satisfaction. 
And add to that the emotion he felt seeing his younger brother after all these years fighting back the desire to rush over and embrace him and reveal his true identity. We know that the flood of emotion he felt was displayed in tears when he left the room. And then third caveat, lots of caveats today. If you're reading the NASB version, it says he was deeply stirred over his brother. The Legacy Standard Bible reads he was deeply stirred with compassion over his brother. What isn't clear from the English translation of the NASB is that the word used here is identical to what is used in verse 14 as the Legacy Bible translates. It's that word that means mercy. The same word that, that uh, Jacob evoked when he prayed that God Almighty, El Shaddai, might grant compassion, mercy for them when they went. So what a beautiful connection between Jacob's prayer for mercy and the mercy shown by Joseph in this emotionally charged situation. But now there's another test. Would they express jealousy over the preferential treatment shown to Benjamin? Joseph collects himself, re-enters, and the meal is served. Well, as we read earlier, two peculiar arrangements are made here <clears throat> with the meal. First of all, Joseph seats them according to age. The brothers were what? Astonished. That word can also be translated amazed or dumbfounded and carries with it the element of fear. As one lexicon put it, frightening or bewildering events may cause people to look at each other in amazement. You know, if, if and I hope this doesn't happen, if, we're, if we suddenly heard an explosion in another part of the building, we'd first all jump and we'd probably look at each other with fear on our faces. Now, you might do that. I would run in the direction, out the door the other way. But that's the kind of fear that came over them as they saw this arrangement. So the reaction tells that they didn't just see this as a coincidence, but something that resurfaced that fear that they felt earlier. And then the next part of the test occurs. All their lives, these 10 brothers have seen Joseph and Benjamin as the favored children of their father. And that's what fueled their jealousy and hatred over them and drove their actions against Joseph. So there's no recorded episodes of them carrying out any hatred acts against Benjamin. But if you recall in chapter 42, when Jacob sent the sons to Egypt the first time, what did he do? Well, he didn't send Benjamin with them. And he said, I'm afraid that harm may befall him. Now, if you're one of the 10 brothers sent to Egypt, what would be your thought? Oh, so you don't care if harm befalls us, but you'll protect the golden child. And then look at back at verse 14. As Jacob, I'm sorry, as Jacob invokes this great prayer for mercy from El Shaddai, he prays, so that he will release to you your other brother in Benjamin. Now, you know what that sounds like to me? It sounds like he couldn't remember his name. I don't know if that's the case. So that he will release to you, uh, you know, uh, what's his name? Your other brother and Benjamin. So maybe that wasn't the case, but it certainly seems consistent with the favoritism that he showed. So as the meal is served, once again, Benjamin gets favored treatment over his brothers. He gets five times the portion that the unfavored brothers get. Now remember, there's a widespread famine going on. If there's ever an opportunity for jealousy to raise its ugly head with piles of rich food spilling off of Benjamin's plate, now's the time, and that's part of the, of the test. He gets all this food, and they haven't had a meal like this in who knows how long. Now, we can debate this last part, whether it's, uh, whether it's a test or not, but consider the meaning of the words in verse 34. It says, drank freely. In Hebrew, that means became drunk. 
According to a respected Hebrew lexicon, most of the time, this Hebrew word is used in a highly unfavorable and negative context. Here, and in a few other references, the context is conviviality, which means a, a friendly and agreeable festive gathering. Well, what happens when people drink freely? Usually they drop their inhibitions and get a little loose tongue. When I was in management years ago, I used to attend quite a few after-work hospitality events, which was usually code word for free-flowing booze. And I saw for myself and heard legendary stories of people who trashed their whole career when they drank so much they just couldn't contain their tongue, saying things that they would never say when in a sober state of mind. So here in this situation, with the favored child being loaded up with portions of food during a widespread famine, the drinks flow freely. And if they were still harboring, harboring any intense jealousy and resentment toward their brother and their father, it was quite possible it would all come blurting out. But it didn't. <clears throat> so now we can answer that question that was posed earlier. I'm sorry, the, the question we posed earlier was, it was a test of their self-control and growth. And it appears that they passed. So now the chapter ends here, but chapter 44 is actually a continuation of the same story and could be viewed as one unit, but I'm going to leave that to the teacher for next week. There is a third point in this text that I want to conclude with, which leads right into the application for us today. All the points from this chapter link from one to the other. We first saw that, oh, I did that already, sorry. The sovereignty of God defines the context in which we live. The famine was severe in the land. We examine the actions and reactions of all the characters in the story because the context in which we live frames the choices we must make. All the characters had choices available to them. Honor God or follow the flesh. And what we learn from all this through trials and testing is the third point. The choices we make reveal our confidence in our sovereign God's commands. I titled this lesson, The Sovereignty of God in Real Time, because just like the characters in this story, in our present moment, we don't know what will occur in the next chapter in our lives. What we do know is that God is sovereign and is always in control, and he always knows what is ahead. And if we believe that he's sovereign and truly trust in his infinite wisdom, how does that in truth impact the way we live and the choices that we make? I found a quote from Arthur Pink that I want to share that I think answers this quite well. And rather than just read it, I want to put it on the screen and break it down because it's, it's a pretty intense quote. And I want us to get a full working understanding. The quote's also on the back page of your notes. Here's the quote. The sovereignty of God is something more than an abstract principle which explains the rationale of the divine government. It is designed as a motive for godly fear. It is made known to us for the promotion of righteous living. It is revealed in order to bring into subjection our rebellious hearts. A true recognition of God's sovereignty humbles as nothing else can or nothing else does or can humble brings the heart into lowly submission before God, causing us to relinquish our own self-will and making us delight in the perception and performance of the divine will. 
You know, all those highlighted words in that, that statement there indicate the believer's response to the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. This powerful doctrine is not something that resides in the dusty pages of a thick systematic theology book that sits on your shelf. It's highly practical and intensely motivating in terms of the actions and attitudes that we display at any moment in whatever context shapes our lives. When you look over the words highlighted in this statement, we could go back through the entire story that we read today and link these characteristics to the people in the story. Jacob relinquished his self-will and chose to submit to God for mercy when he allowed Benjamin to make the trip to Egypt. In all the travails that Joseph encountered, he practiced righteous living and submitted himself to God and resisted the urge for revenge. The brothers humbled themselves and laid aside their jealousy, resentment, and revenge for righteous living. Now, as we live under the sovereign hand of God in real time, we don't know what will happen in the next chapter of our lives, the next day, or even the next hour. But although we don't know how our current chapter will end, we do know the end of the story. And unlike the illustration I told at the beginning when the girl ruined the movie for all of her friends, God has graciously told us the conclusion of all things, and that's what gives us hope in real time and the assurance that we can trust him at all times, even when the sovereign context in which we live seems bleak. All the characters throughout the Bible lived in real time under the sovereign hand of God. There are stories of great triumph in the face of dire circumstances. Think of young David facing Goliath. The odds from a real-time perspective were not in his favor. Yet he trusted God for the victory and defeated the giant. Abraham and Sarah longed for a child and were promised by God to be the father of a great nation. Their real-time challenges were impossible by human standards, but they chose to believe in him. Yeah, they faltered and doubted at times, but they were noted in Hebrews 11 as having living by faith in God that he would keep his word. All the people in that great chapter, Hebrews 11 of faith, lived in real-time challenges with obstacles and I'm sure periods of doubt. But those, through those situations in the context in which they lived, they trusted a sovereign God. And then if you read the rest of the chapter, there were others whose real-time situa situations were equally dire but their chapter didn't end in triumph by human standards. Mockings, scourging, stonings, imprisonment, poverty, and all sorts of ill treatment and death. As it says in verse 39, all these gained approval through their faith. Faith in who? Faith in the sovereign God who reigns over the whole universe and has reserved a place in eternity for all those who repent and believe in him. And they're victors now. Absolutely they are. I've always loved the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, arrested for not bowing down to the king's golden image. They were sentenced to be thrown into the fiery furnace unless they complied with the edict. That's a pretty dire real-time situation. Did they know the end of the chapter? No, they didn't. What do they say? Well, their response is recorded in Daniel 3, 16 and 18. It says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of the blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But then I love verse 18. But even if he does not, because they didn't know, 
Let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Was that a lack of faith on their part? Should they have said with confidence that God will deliver them? They weren't promised deliverance, but they were commanded to be faithful in real time, in the real-time crisis that they faced. That is a crystal clear example of what it means to trust El Shaddai in the midst of a real-time, sovereignly orchestrated situation. Again, when I look over this room, there are a lot of people whom I think it is safe to say have experienced a lot of difficult, trying, and at times dire, real-time situations. And if we had the time, it would be encouraging to elicit it would be encouraging and it would elicit much praise as we hear testimonies of trusting in a sovereign God. And there are probably others who are right now smack dab in the middle of some very difficult real-time event. And this chapter is a reminder that God is always in control. He knows the beginning and the end. And as we read the statement from Arthur Pink, at any given real-time moment, God is honored when we trust him in godly fear. We relinquish our own selfish will, submit every part of our life to him in complete humility. My father was 61 years old when he died. Three years before he passed away, he was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease, which is ALS. And once you get such a diagnosis, you're confronted with the reality that there is no known cure, and you learn about the disease's progression. In a conversation with my brother after some time had passed, my dad and my brother were out in the driveway doing something, and my brother asked my dad about his thoughts about the disease that was slowly erasing the physical vitality of his body. And my dad said this, every day I pray that God will deliver me from this illness. I think he was afraid of the impact it would have on my mom. He said, every day I pray that God will deliver me from this illness, but if he doesn't, I'm ready to meet him. So there were no demands for him that God would cure him, no raised fist for what was happening to his body, but a trust in the sovereign God who knew the end of the story of his life that years before he had come to him in repentance and faith. My father had a beautiful voice. If you ever heard him sing, I think you would agree with that. In fact, a lot of people compared him to George Beverly Shea, who was the vocalist for Billy Graham through all his crusades. He had that kind of a voice. And throughout his life, he sang in the church choir, he sang quartets and solos, he sang at funerals and weddings, including mine, well, my wedding, that is. <laughs> and over the years, there was one song he sang uh, more than any other that I remember. In fact, a song that people associated as his signature song. And I want to read the lyrics in closing because I think it so clearly captures the right perspective of all believers who live in real time and trust in a sovereign God. The words go like this. I don't know about tomorrow. I just live from day to day. I don't borrow from its sunshine for its skies may turn to gray. I don't worry over the future for I know what Jesus said. And today I'll walk beside him for he knows what is ahead. Many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand. But I know who holds tomorrow and I know who holds my hand. Every step is getting brighter as the golden stairs I climb. Every burden's getting lighter. Every cloud is silver lined. There the sun is always shining. There no tear will dim the eyes. At the ending of the rainbow where the mountains touch the sky. I don't know about tomorrow. It may bring me poverty. But the one who feeds the sparrow is the one who stands by me. And the path that be my portion 
may be through the flame, may be through the flame or flood, but his presence goes before me and I'm covered with his blood. Many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand, but I know who holds tomorrow and I know who holds my hand. That's our sovereign God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are amazed when we read the scriptures from beginning to end. You've told us how it all comes to a conclusion and you've given us sure and sufficient reasons to trust you, believe in you, and know that you are a merciful God, El Shaddai, who controls all things and nothing slips by you. Regardless of the dire circumstances we face, the real-time situations that we confront throughout our lives, we know that we can say as Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain because we know that who holds the future. We thank you for this story. We thank you for the lessons we learn as we see the unfolding plan of the sovereignty of God throughout the life of Joseph, the choices that had to be made, the situations that they were in. Dear God, I pray that each one of us might learn to live in godly fear, to relinquish our own selfish will, to trust in you. And I know that you'll guide us each and every day. We thank you for this lesson, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.